0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with William Collier Hall, author of the novel The Trouble with Panthers.
1: I tend to describe the story as a tragedy, because myself, being a native Floridian, a lot of the things that I see happening to the state in my lifetime are tragic.
0: We'll visit the Stranahan House in Fort Lauderdale.
2: I I think it's just an interesting story of how two people on the Florida frontier had fascinating lives.
0: A tour of the historic Breakers Hotel and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the song Running Out of Time, Benjamin Dehart laments what the future is bringing to the Florida he has loved in the past. The same sentiment is expressed in the novel The Trouble with Panthers by William Collier Hall, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. The Trouble with Panthers is about a fictional contemporary Florida family, but as Hall explains, the Rollerson family and their story does reflect Florida history. The
1: family, the Rollersons, um, are a fifth fifth generation cattle people and the grandfather in the story in the year 2004 is nearing the end of his life and he wants to relate to his grandson the family history and how they became involved in ranching and uh, what it took to build a cattle business from scratch. And he goes into great detail telling Bodie Rollerson his story before he passes away. And uh, it gave me a chance, by incorporating that in the book, to relate some of the history, even though the actual story itself is set in modern times.
0: The history of the fictional Rollerson family mirrors the actual history of many real Florida families who have been in the cattle industry for generations. While the history of Florida's cattle industry is explored in The Trouble with Panthers, the primary focus is on a changing present and an inevitable future.
1: Like most of the cattle families in Florida now, um, the property values have escalated to the point where it almost doesn't make sense to try to raise cattle on property that you could get 10 times the money by developing it. And But if you're a dyed-in-the-wool cowman, you want to keep raising cattle. And if you already have the property, you'll do everything you can to continue that tradition. And that's some of the Rollersons are that way, but unfortunately they all aren't in this
0: story. Some of the Rollersons want to diversify their family business by going into sod farming. Others want to sell their property for a new housing development. As author Bill Hall mentioned, The Trouble with Panthers is set in 2004. Floridians who were here in 2004 will remember it as a year when winds of change, both actual and metaphorical, blew through the state.
1: That was the year that we had the series of hurricanes, Charlie, Francis, and Jean in August and September. The story begins right after the hurricanes, about six weeks after the storms, and I suppose it was because I began the story early in 2005, so that had just happened. It was fresh in my own mind, and I saw how the local cattle people had to deal with the storms and its effects, and so I started the story
0: there. Patrick Smith has endorsed Hall's book, The Trouble with Panthers, saying, quote, this is one of those rare novels that both entertain and inform. It takes the reader on a journey through Florida cattle country in times gone by and is a pleasure to read. The characters are real, the actions are real, and the scenes are real highly recommended. End quote. Some parallels can be drawn between Patrick Smith's much-loved novel, A Land Remembered, and Hall's the Trouble with Panthers in Smith's book. The story of the McGIvy family is told over several generations. While the McGIvies are fictional, their story is a composite of the actual experiences of Florida pioneer families. The same is true in much of Hall's book.
1: When I came up with the idea of the story, I, having witnessed the Duda family, um, the Partons, the Bronsons, many of these families ran into similar problems um, as the patriarch of the family, neared the end of their life, then the children had to decide, are we going to continue to do this? And in not in all cases. Um, the Rollersons, of course, they're fictitious. Um, I have had to explain that to several of the old cowmen I know. They thought, sure, they knew who the Rollersons were, but i made them up. They're strictly fiction.
0: In the novel The Trouble with Panthers, the theme of Florida's past colliding with the future is emphasized through two very different characters. The mystical Native American called Solomon is a metaphor in the novel for Florida's past.
1: Solomon is is a nickname that July Rollerson, the patriarch, has given to this Indian many years before Bodie encounters him. In fact, um... Bodhi learns that other than he in July, no one has ever seen this Indian. So whether or not he even exists becomes a, a question. Um, some of the people tend to think he may be a ghost, but I won't give that away. Um, but this Solomon, you you really, I never divulged his actual name. Uh, July calls him Solomon because he has a habit of quoting from Ecclesiastes. And he talks in riddles, but after Bodhi has had some time to think about it, he realizes that the old man makes a lot of sense. And the Indian warns Bodhi that he's facing what the Indians have already faced in Florida.
0: A much darker character makes appearances throughout The Trouble with Panthers, eventually entering into a direct conflict with the novel's protagonist, the young cattleman Bodie Rollerson. This dark character, Hall says, is a metaphor for Florida's future. The dark
1: character, um, basically he is a serial killer, and he seemingly has no conscience. He He's just He sees everything in black and white, and if he wants it, he takes it and does whatever he has to do in order to do that. Um, and if anyone reading the book will find out that he also has no name, or if he does, it's never divulged.
0: The Trouble with Panthers is ultimately a dark tale of innocence lost and a lifestyle lost. Author Bill Hall clearly laments the difficult choices that many long-time cattle families in Florida must make today. I tend to
1: describe the story as a tragedy because myself, being a native Floridian, a lot of the things that I see happening to the state in my lifetime are tragic, and that's just how I view them. And I think anyone that's been here a good while... Um, I'm not going to tell them anything they haven't already seen.
0: Patrick Smith says that people often tell him with certainty that the fictional McGivy family was based upon the lives of their ancestors. Bill Hall is getting similar comments from Florida Cattlemen about the fictional Rollerson family and the trouble with Panthers.
1: I deliberately misspelled Rollerson. I didn't use the classic spelling because Rollerson is an old Florida cracker name. And uh, the one person that absolutely knew who I was writing about said, "That's old Eulie Rollerson," and I said, "Well, it's July Rollerson." But the feedback I it has all been good, um, ranging from amazing to uh, that. Yeah, that's a good book, but. I haven't had any really negative criticism, which I, I don't want negative criticism, but it is nice sometimes because it helps to make me a better writer.
0: William Collier Hall is author of the novel The Trouble with Panthers, published by the Florida Historical Society Press.
3: into the morning silence, knowing its days are numbered.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to order great books like The Trouble with Panthers, listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events like our annual meeting in Jacksonville this year, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. In
4: 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian James Cusick.
5: In the 1700s, As the English colonies grew, and Spanish settlers remained in control of Florida, tension rose along the Florida-Georgia border. During troubles that arose during the War of Jenkins' Ear in 1739, English and Spanish settlers were once again attacking each other. The Georgians struck early, coming south in 1740 under their governor James Oglethorpe to lay siege to St. Augustine. They captured and then lost the Free Black Settlement of Fort Mose, which was destroyed in the process. The following year, the Spaniards struck back with an attack on the town of Frederica in southern Georgia, which failed. Many border places were abandoned. One traveler visiting Amelia Island, Florida's northernmost barrier island, observed, quote, It is a very pleasant island, formerly inhabited by the Spaniards. What a pity so much pleasant good land
4: should lie uninhabited, unquote. University of Florida historian, James Cusick. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society.
3: week of the New Year, it's 80 degrees. The rest of the country is in a shivering freeze. Breakfast on the balcony, salt spray in the air. It almost seems like it ain't fair. And the place to be is at the Floridiana Hotel. Choking up the sunshine Riding the swells. Won't you send me a postcard From the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies And wishing me well Alcazar in the fountain blue Royal Palm in the breaker's too Living it up in the gilded age
0: That's Chris Call singing about some of Florida's historic hotels, including the Breakers in West Palm Beach. As Janie Gould reports, for almost three decades, James Ponce has been giving historic tours at the Breakers Hotel.
6: Palm Beach's only certified two-legged historic landmark is giving a tour of the Breakers Hotel, which Henry Flagler built 114 years ago. James Ponce is 93, a Florida native, and member of the oldest documented family in America, the Solanas. His family also has a link to Ponce de Leon, who discovered Florida and the Gulf Stream. Ponce tells tour guests the current used to be known as the Spanish Main. It helps Spanish treasure ships make their way back to the old world.
7: Sometimes it would be very calm, and after they left Havana, if they could get into the Gulf Stream, they could still make progress.
6: You're a native of St. Augustine. Your father actually was the undertaker at Henry Flagler's funeral.
7: I'm sure that was the highlight of his career. He always spoke of it with great pride because Flagler wanted to be taken back to St. Augustine and put in the beautiful, beautiful Presbyterian church that he built there. He died here in Palm Beach. They say people waited up through the night for the passing of the the Funeral Train, all decked out with black like a head of state it was. When it arrived into St. Augustine, they used to have the roundhouse there. Each of the engines blasted their steam whistle one after the other. And my father said he had quite a time holding Nelly, the horse that drove the hearse.
6: You're the official historian of the breakers. What's the biggest change you've seen at the breakers?
7: Oh, you know, I think the thing that changed the whole lifestyle you see today was the airplane. Before, people packed a steamer trunk. People were perfectly happy to bring their tucks and long gowns. My goodness, when I first came to work at this hotel, a man wouldn't even come down in the morning to the lobby without a coat and tie on.
6: Was that required at breakfast, even?
7: Oh, yes. But you didn't have to tell people. They knew what was expected of them. I remember they finally went from six nights a week in formal attire to Wednesday and Saturday. Then they got to Saturday and now we have a hard time getting a coat and tie on them to go into our gourmet dining room. Maybe no
6: cutoffs or tank tops allowed.
7: That's pretty hard to enforce actually because People feel that they're on a vacation and things should be very casual.
6: Who's the most interesting guest you ever saw?
7: One of the delights was when Betty Davis was staying here. When she was leaving, they asked if she could leave other than the front door because there were a lot of people to see her off and ask for autographs, and she didn't like that. I met her at the elevator. I'm hoping that she'd say something very Betty Davis, you know. I opened the door and she said, thank you. When she got out to the top of the steps, she turned to me and she says, Oh, how lovely. Black limousines. They've station-wagoned me to death since I've been here. Pardon my poor imitation.
6: (laughs) If the walls of the breakers could talk, what's the most interesting story they might tell you?
7: Oh, I, I don't know what that would be. I remember once I was giving a tour and someone said, Well, this late in the season, I guess there aren't any celebrities there. I says, Well, when we turned the corner, you'd almost think, that that was ex-president nixon talking to chet huntley and i said that was ex-president nixon talking to chet huntley
6: you were named palm beach's only two-legged historic landmark
7: that's right when they got up to number 200 of the markers that go on the houses the mayor and the town council decided to do something special with it so they awarded it to me as a two-legged landmark and they came over here to the Breakers to present it to me. I took one look at it and said, oh my goodness, that's the biggest damn TITAC I ever saw. It sounds good in introduction, you know.
6: James Ponce, who is retired as assistant manager of the Breakers, has been doing his historic tours for nearly 27 years.
7: Janie Gould
0: from WQCS prepared that report.
3: Won't you send me a postcard from the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies and wishing me well On a daiquiri I'm already headed south In my mind In the place to be Is at the Floridiana Hotel Swimming with the dolphins Riding the swells Won't you send me a postcard From the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies And wishing me well Won't you bring me blue skies and wish me well? Won't you bring me blue skies and wish me well?
0: This is Florida Frontiers. The Stranahan House of Fort Lauderdale was built in 1901. More significant than the house itself are the extraordinary people who live there, a man and a woman who shaped South Florida history in the early 20th century. Bill Dudley has more.
2: I, I think it's just an interesting story of how two people on the Florida frontier had fascinating lives. Became the cornerstone of the community and are acknowledged as that.
4: Harry Kersey Jr. is retired as historian at Florida Atlantic University. He's the author of a book about the life and times of the Stranahans of Fort Lauderdale it's a story that begins in the early 1890s when an entrepreneur named guy metcalf got a contract to build a road south through the newly created dade county
2: then he also founded a hack line uh, which with a couple of mules and a really sounds like a horrible conveyance to carry passengers you could go down that road from uh, from the foot of lake worth all the way down to miami And in order to do this, it was too long a ride for one day. You had to spend the night on the road. So the natural place to break the trip was at New River. So they put up an overnight camp there, a number of tents and a cook tent, He hired Frank Stranahan, his cousin, to come down in 1893 and be the first manager of this camp.
4: The arrival of Flagler's Railroad to Miami a few years later spurred the growth of a community around the New River, and the young man was in the middle of
2: it. He immediately saw that there was a business opportunity in trading with the Seminole Indians of the region. The Indians would bring in their alligator hides and otter pelts and bird plumes and trade them with him for various and sundry um, hardware items and dry goods. And then he started buying property, and he was a real wheeler dealer. He functioned as an informal banker for the community. People would leave their cash with him. And then later on, he and several others went together and actually organized the first bank of Fort Lauderdale.
4: By 1899, Frank Stranahan was the most eligible bachelor in the area and the principal citizen of a growing settlement.
2: In fact, that's what brought Ivy to the New River Settlement in 1899. She came as the first school teacher. There were about nine families there and had a number of children, and that was enough for Dade County to organize a school and sent her up. She was an 18-year-old school teacher.
4: The couple was married in 1900. A year later, Frank built the two-story Stranahan house. Ivy taught Indian children at the Trading Post, joined the newly founded Audubon Society, and lobbied her husband to stop trading in plumes from birds whose species were already endangered. She was a teetotaler who opposed him selling any kind of strong drink to the Indians. She joined with May Man Jennings, Annie Broward, and Mary Elizabeth Bryan to confront the male-dominated Florida legislature on behalf of women's suffrage. Meanwhile, respected as a civic leader and man of integrity, Frank and his affairs prospered into the early 1920s.
2: There was no major business venture that took place in the Fort Lauderdale area that Frank didn't have a piece of the action. His holdings in real estate, the bank was opened Frank uh, was on the city commission. Everything was going well, and then he got hit by the bust in the 1920s when the land boom (laughs) exploded. By 1929, the bottom fell out of the land market, and the bank failed. And Frank was left with a massive amount of debt, really lost everything.
4: Perhaps the state of his finances and a severe health problem hinted at in letters from relatives caused Frank Stranahan to drown himself in the New River in May 1929. The community was devastated. Renting out the first floor of the house, Ivy moved upstairs and hung on. Still, she continued what would be a lifetime crusade for Indian reform founding a group called Friends of the Seminoles.
2: Seminole children could not go to public school in Florida because of the racial segregation. In 1936, the only place Indian children really could go was to an Indian boarding school up in Cherokee, North Carolina. After World War II, the Friends of the Seminoles pushed to have the Indian children admitted to public school and by 1946 Broward County started to admit Indian children to the regular public school classes.
4: With the tall buildings of downtown Fort Lauderdale rising around her, Ivy continued to live in the house, granting the occasional interview to a newspaper writer or a young historian like Harry Kersey. In
2: 1968, two years before her death, We had this wonderful interview in which she focused on the Indians and the Indian trade and how her husband had carried this out and her role with the Indians over the years. As she sat there and and talked about these things, and she was sort of staring out at the New River. We were sitting up on the second floor of her home. And as she told these stories, you know, she's looking out and in her mind's eye, you could just see her, you know, visualizing these Indians coming down in their dugout canoes.
4: Since its renovation in the 1980s, the Stranahan House has become a local landmark and historic site and a monument to the spirit of a pioneering Florida couple.
2: They were very average people who did some very extraordinary things. They were not born to any great wealth, and they were not highly educated, but they were people who made a niche for themselves on the Florida frontier and sort of grew with the community. As the issues changed, as the times changed, they were right there.
4: Historian Harry Kersey, Jr., author of The Stranahans of Fort Lauderdale, A Pioneer Family of New River published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week.